Welcome to Living Through the Word, the podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Here we bring in different voices from across the diocese and Christendom to discuss topics that matter for ministry and life today. I'm Julian Dobbs, the Diocesan Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. And here we serve two purposes. Firstly, to connect and showcase and introduce the people and ministry of the diocese. And second, to listen to those who are contributing to the continuing education of lay people and ministers in the church. And to that end, we're incredibly privileged to have with us again uh, on this episode of Living Through the Word, a leading scholar uh, in the origin of the New Testament, a voice uh, to the church today, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, who is the president uh, of the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of the New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Kruger, great to have you back with us. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be back with you one more time. Tell me, how's it been through this uh, unusual period of uh, social distancing and COVID and uh, your work at the seminary and for you and your family? Yeah, well, like everybody, I know we're all waiting for it to be over and are a bit weary. We're certainly like that here. We, we're grateful on the RTS front, though, that God has blessed our summer term. I mean, obviously, we're not having classes in person here, but we rolled out 40 new classes for the summer, just unique classes online for the summer, and they filled up in about 24 hours. <laughs> so we added 10 more. Now we got 50 new classes all full up for the summer. So that's encouraging. Of course, we're hoping to be back residentially in the fall, but uh, we're like everybody, not, not going to count our chickens before they hatch. We're going to trust that into the sovereignty of God. Last time you joined us, Dr. Kruger, um, we talked a little bit about uh, Christianity in the, um, the early centuries. Uh, you helped me wrestle as a bishop with some questions about bishops. Uh, we had someone uh, respond to that episode by saying, uh, so you had Dr. Kruger on to talk about bishops? I remember saying, yeah, and it was delightful and very reassuring. And <laughs> now I think uh, I got you in trouble there, maybe. I, don't know. <laughs> I was very grateful for what you said. And uh, again, uh, such uh, tremendous work. Thank you for it. On a recent um, uh, call with the clergy of the diocese, I asked them these questions. I said, uh, do you believe any of the following statements? Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. The work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. We should care more about love and less about sex. I said each of these statements are partially true, uh, and if, if, if you've embraced them, it's possible that you've embraced one of what we're calling the, the, the 10 principles set forth by proponents of progressive Christianity. You've written a book. I've listened to it as an audio book called The Ten Commandments of uh, Progressive Christianity. Are these your 10 commandments, Dr. Kruger? Did you write them? Tell us how we got here. Yeah. Uh, well, the story is interesting, actually. I had a uh, a friend of mine in my church who was trying to to actually share the gospel with a family member, and the family member kept giving him this material by Richard Rohr. Now, Richard Rohr, as everyone knows, is sort of a well-known spiritual leader in certain segments of, of Christendom that um, tends to be non-traditional and more progressive. And 
I, I decided to look into Richard Rohr and what he was saying and teaching in order to help my friend. And Richard Rohr had laid out these 10 principles uh, of what he thought made a good Christian. This is what you believe. And then I did a little more digging and found out that Richard Rohr actually got them from a book by Philip Gully um, that is entitled, What If the Church Were Christian? Um, and, uh, and so I realized these are spread wide and far. And so I've, I've sort of coined the phrase 10 commandments of progressive Christianity. That's my phrase, but the actual 10 commandments themselves are, are not my words. The, the things you read out are the words of Philip Gully and Richard Rohr. But when we read them, we think, uh, and I mentioned this as, as we started this episode, when we read some of them, we think, yeah, they're partially true. Um, they're, they're, they're partially okay. Would that's you right. say that's true? I mean, just talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. In fact, this is why I wrote the book. I realized that when you read some of these, um, there's a side of us that says, well, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. And we find ourselves assenting to it, and it kind of makes sense to us. And, and we don't realize that what we're really coming up against in these Ten Commandments is, is half-truths or partial truths. And and I, and I would argue, and I'm not the first to, to do this, that that's actually what makes them more compelling, is they're not all false. Um, it would be easy to write a book, I suppose, about 10 completely false things, and then not many people would be tripped up by that, right? So people are tripped up normally by things that are partially true and partially false. And so there's an element of truth in each of these. Um, in fact, in my book, I try to acknowledge the fact that I think they're trying to get at something that's true. The problem is it's, it's what's left unsaid most of the time than what is said, or at least it's not balanced out. And so these are tricky. Um, <laughs> and for that reason, I think, you know, people need to be aware of them. And I think we're, we buy into them more than we realize because of the half-truth version of them. We're recording this episode uh, in uh, early June, 2020, and our nation is gripped with a lot of violence and uh, division. One of those uh, commandments, um, uh, references reconciliation. It talks about the work of the re reconciliation being valued over making judgments. And we're hearing a lot about that, Dr. Kruger. Yeah. Um, and maybe people might push back uh, and say, maybe they might, I don't know. Maybe I'll push back and say, but reconciliation is so important. How could this at all be considered progressive? What yeah. Uh, well, well, first of all, I, we would agree that reconciliation is important. Um, and in my chapter, I acknowledge that's the truth that's, that's hidden there, is that the Bible speaks a lot about peace between human beings, not just peace between God and humans, which is the core of the gospel, but then therefore peace between humans. So reconciliation is a big part of the biblical message, something we would heartily affirm, embrace, and encourage. And as you note, we're recording this in June of 2020. We need reconciliation now more than ever. The problem, though, with that particular commandment is it, it juxtaposes reconciliation against making judgments. In other words, the way you reconcile, it is argued, is that you stop telling people they're wrong. You stop making judgments about what's good and bad and right or wrong or moral or immoral. But as you can imagine, that rings hollow in this situation, because if we really were to follow that, we would be unable to condemn the racism we're seeing in our country today, um, which is a judgment. Um, if I say that someone does something wrong and that they ought to stop doing it, that's a judgment call. But but according to this version of progressive Christianity, apparently I have to find a way to achieve reconciliation without actually making any judgments, which is, I would argue, and I think the Bible would argue is impossible. So once again, they're dividing what God says don't separate. It is not inconsistent to say, on the one hand, we desire reconciliation, and to get there, we have to acknowledge some things are just wrong, and they need to be repented of and apologized for and, and dealt with. Um, and so this is a good example of, of 
of what sounds really good on the surface, reconciliation, but without any real teeth to it when you get down to the nitty gritty. Maybe we'll come back to some of the others in a moment. I want you to help us understand, Dr. Kruger, if you would, that none of this is new. These aren't 10 um, commandments of progressive Christianity that have come to us in 2020. In fact, they've probably always been there. Can you take us on a little bit of a journey uh, referencing people like um, Dr. Machen and, and others and how this is not a new conversation in the church? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you read these Ten Commandments and and someone who maybe is unfamiliar with the historical landscape will think to themselves, wow, that's that's refreshing. That's That's the kind of Christianity I want. And they think, yes, let's invent, or maybe the term is reinvent Christianity mm, and let's make mm. this better 2.0 version of it. Um, and this happens every so often where people think we're going to try this again and reinvent it. And I think when you look at it from the historical perspective, you realize that these 10 principles are actually not new versions of things. They're not new ideas. They're old attempts that have been tried many times. And I think rightly not, not succeeded to re recast Christianity into some other mold. And, and you mentioned Jay Gresham Machen is a good example of this. In my introduction to the book, I mentioned Machen. He wrote a very famous book in the early 20th century called Christianity and Liberalism. And that was born out of his own experience, which people may know he was once a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton Seminary went liberal. Machen ended up leaving, starting Westminster Seminary. The whole point of Machen's book was there's a version of Christianity out there called liberalism, which he argues is not really Christianity at all. It's not actually another kind of Christianity. It turns out to be an entirely different religion. And I think that's the same thing going on here. Progressive Christianity if, if held to, is, is actually not Christianity. It's something entirely different. It's, it's another religion. It's very, it's very seductive, though, um, Dr. Kruger, isn't it? Because when I listen to your book and I listen to some of these, I, I, I found myself thinking, yes, I want to agree, uh, but also wrestling biblically and my knowledge of Scripture saying, hang on, we've got to see another side of this. And so there must be some, some trigger points that – um, every denomination faces, regardless of its, its tradition, attacks uh, by this progressive agenda. Um, what are some of those trigger points, those early warning signs in the church that might um, be helpful for us to look for so that we can be um, inoculated against this type of incursion? Yeah, well, I think you're right. It is subtle. Uh, there's a side, when you hear it, you, you tend to agree. I think, I think most heresies are like that, mm. at least ones that succeed. I mean, you just mm. look at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Satan comes to Eve. He, he's not irrational entirely. He, he doesn't come to Eve and say, you know, let's mount a rebellion. You know, let's, he, he just sort of slides in there a little doubt and a little question. And, uh, and I think his, his tactic there in the Garden is probably the first thing to watch out for in our churches is that, the only way to respond to the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity, and the only way you can have a balanced view of these issues is if you rely on God's word as a guide. As soon as you decide, I'm going to rely on, on human opinion or human reason as the guide, you've already decided in advance which version of Christianity you're going to end up with. So, you know, step one for any denomination, step one for any church or, or diocese is to, is to say we can prevent this first and foremost, not necessarily by looking at the details of each of the 10 of these, although that is helpful, but by taking a step back and saying the first place we need to make sure is that we're always looking to God's word to determine these things. If someone says, you know, that following Jesus' example is better than worshiping him or more important than worshiping him, the next question is, well, is that what the Bible says, right? Is, is the scripture say that? And so, you know, my, my first advice for any group and any person is always, 
What, what, what role does the authority of scripture play in your situation? And that's the only way you're going to defeat these 10 commandments. Always back to the word of God. And isn't that so reassuring for mm-hmm. us as Christians that, that in the changing days and the violence we're seeing at the moment in our country, uh, in the uncertainty that some of that has brought to so many people, the challenge of COVID that has caused restlessness of, um, amongst people, we have the certainty of Christ and his word to us. And uh, thank, thank God for that. In fact, I think you wrote, um, liberal Christianity r- never really goes away if the church is going to hold fast to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, we must in every area, every era, uh, be able to distinguish uh, the true faith from the false. And obviously, um, deepening our understanding, our reception, our um, reading of the Word of God is, is the primary way uh, that, that we do that. Um, do you agree? I do. I think it's the primary way we do that. I think there's other things that really help, though, one of which we've already hinted at, which is if you're going to if you're going to sort of deal with false teachings as they come up and they are cyclical. Right. That's the point you've made so far is that you need God's word on the one hand as the primary way to defeat it. But a, a secondary and yet still very important help is is a is a large historical perspective on the history of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, we are not fighting this the first time now. And I think problems with modern evangelicalism and modern Protestant uh, circles is that they, they, they sometimes are a little cut off from the history of the church and don't really take into account how this has been handled before and before that and before that. I mean, it is a bit of a broken record. And so I think having an historical perspective here really helps us realize that, hey, you know, we've done this before. We, we, yes, yes, we have to do it again. It's unfortunate, but that's part of the battle. We have to do it again, but we've not done it. Uh, we're not doing it for the first time now, and that really does bring helpful perspective. So, Dr. Kruger, um, what would you say to any of the, the pastors, clergy that are listening to this episode who might take a look at these and, for example, um, read that affirming people's potential is more important than reminding of their brokenness? And they might say to us, you know, people come to me in my congregation, they're, they're needy, they want me to affirm them, I'm trying to call the best out of them. Um, should I really be pointing into their brokenness? And what is the outcome of doing that? Why is that so important? And why is affirming their potential? Um, why, why does that become tricky? Yeah, well, actually, this is one of those Ten Commandments that you, you mentioned sounds really good at first, right? <laughs> like, I mean, do I really want to go around in my church and beat up on people? And I don't mean physically, of course, but do I want to spiritually always be pointing out their sin all the time and, and sort of hitting them over the head with the Bible and being negative? Can I be positive? Can I talk about human potential? And so on one level, this taps into a real problem. And so in my chapter on this, I actually acknowledge first that it is true that humans have amazing potential. Uh, God made them in our ima- in his image. And e- each of us, male and female, are made in the image of God. We have tremendous uniqueness. We have uh, a tremendous dignity as God's image bearers. And by virtue of being an image bearer, there, there is a lot of a potential there. Um, in terms of doing and accomplishing uh, wonderful things in this world for the glory of God. Now, that said, that sort of dignity and honor has been marred, and it's been marred deeply by the fall and deeply by sin. So you can't get to that potential, if we can use that term, um, unless you first deal with the problem of depravity and sin. And of course, once you start talking about that, that's the very thing that progressives don't want to talk about. When they say, hey, let's talk more about people's potential rather than their problems, that's just a euphemism for saying sin's not a very big deal. 
And that's exactly where we want to push back. Uh, one of the things that Machen says in his book on Christianity and liberalism is that this is one of the first sliding signs of a sliding church or a sliding denomination is that they downplay the seriousness of sin. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a problem. Why are we so worried about this? Aren't we a little stuffy? God's not upset. These sorts of things. And then if you downplay sin, well, then that inevitably leads you to downplay the cross. Because if the cross is Jesus dying for sins, sins aren't that big a deal. And the cross isn't a big deal. And you can see why now suddenly you move away from atonement. Jesus really didn't die on the cross for sins. Rather, he just died as a moral example. So all of that means that is that this is the beginning of the whole thing. Once you start pulling this thread, sin's not a very big deal. Then the rest of the sweater comes unraveled pretty fast. So what I say in this chapter is, yes, humans have tremendous dignity, worth, and value and great potential, but it also has, uh, humans have a great potential for awful things too. In fact, I, I watched a, a news show just the other day on all this, all the rioting and, and, and problems in our country right now. And I heard a, a newscaster say the most amazing thing. He said, you know what? I've begun to realize in the last, this is rough paraphrase of what he said. He said, I've begun to realize in the last few days that, that human beings have an amazing potential for, for, for evil, for doing bad things. And, and it sounded like it was a revelation to him, like he'd never thought about it before. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's been the Christian message since the beginning, right? Which is that humans do have a lot of potential for doing really bad things. It doesn't mean every person's as wicked as they can be. It does mean that we all have it in us to be uh, uh, really depraved and that we need grace and forgiveness in the cross. So, yeah, this is, this is an important we find a balance between those two things. We saw this in our own story, Dr. Kruger, uh, in our denomination as we uh, became unshackled from our former, uh, what we would call theological moorings that yeah. had lost their grip. Uh, and uh, you are so correct, sir, in that our own story is that uh, as uh, that particular domination lost sight of the cross and lost sight of Christ on the cross and what was accomplished for us, uh, lost sight of the word of God written. Uh, that a progressive theology began to take over. And it makes it then very, very difficult, doesn't it, to preach the cross when you're trying to affirm everybody for whatever their belief may be. Um, what might you say as uh, people lovingly pastor in their congregations, uh, people who've been, who have grown up in that context, that uh, progressive context, and are discovering this for the first time, it can be, it can be quite harsh to them to hear these things. Um, what, what words of wisdom might you uh, say to those who, uh, who, who, want to be, um, who, who, who want to be less overbearing and aggressive? Yeah, I understand that concern. And, and, and we want to be clear with, with them that, that the call here is not to be, you know, harsh pastors and harsh preachers. Um, you know, the model laid out in Scripture is gentleness um, and carefulness and to be soft and, and, and gentle with the sheep that we're caring for. Um, but I would say it's, it's not that different than what a physician does to a patient. A physician who, who, who's dealing with a patient and wants to be gentle and kind and sweet would be very mean to that patient if they hid their illness from them. If they said to their patient, you're not really sick, you're just fine. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that you have fourth stage cancer and I'm going to send you on home, make you feel good about yourself. No, it may sound like bad news to tell a patient they have you know, stage four cancer, but by golly, if there's going to be any chance of them living, they need to know that and get on the right treatment. So. On one sense, I would encourage the pastors, of course, you should be gentle and kind and gentle and soft with your flock. We're not, you're not calling in, you know, we're not, you know, guns out of the holsters here blazing away, but rather think of yourself like a physician where you're trying to help a very sick patient and you have to start by being honest with them about their illness. Remember, Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. 
Um, he not came for the righteous, but for the sinner. Those are his words. And so if we're going to be a, a minister in his stead, we have to think like he thought. I'm talking to Dr. Kruger, uh, his book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. We'll put the uh, link in the show notes of this podcast. I encourage people to listen to it. I've urged the clergy uh, of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word to get hold of it. I want to pick up just on a couple of more, uh, Dr. Kruger, uh, that that um, uh, that spoke out to me as I, as I looked at your work. Um, one of the things I, I often hear people say, and I've, I've said it myself, is that we're on a journey together. We're journeying together. And after I read your book, I've, I've been very conscious about not saying that. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and you well, come I think it's to partly mind. true. It's partly true, depending on how you mean it. <laughs> you come to mind as, um, as, as, as I hear myself beginning to say, we're on a journey. We're journeying towards this. We're journeying towards that. Um, uh, and here's the thought. Encouraging the personal search, progressives say, is more important than group uniformity. Can, can, can you unpack that for us and, and why you might be a little restless about using um, that whole concept of being on a journey together? Yeah, there's been a trend in recent years that, uh, and this isn't, again, new, but it, it, it feels a little new, where the, the, the highest virtue now in the church is uncertainty. And the most condemned thing in the church, and I would argue in society too, is that you have any whiff of certainty about what you think. And so if you're uncertain, you're lauded. If you're certain, well, then you're a Pharisee. Um, and of course, historically, that's insane. I mean, you know, if you look through the history of the church, not even non-Christians used to talk that way. I mean, even non-Christians would claim you could know things uh, and they could be certain of things. And they would also acknowledge that, you know, as soon as you say you can't know, that's a, that's a certain claim in its own right. And so you actually you know, inconsistent to say, I'm absolutely certain that you have to be uncertain. Um, and so there's philosophical problems there too. Um, and so what you find then is a culture in churches that suggests that you can't ever land on any conclusions, that you, that you, mm -hmm. can't, ever, you can't ever reach the destination. And so if you can't ever reach the destination, then you're perpetually on, quote, a journey. And, it, and to say you're on a journey is just another way of saying, well, I don't know anything, you don't know anything, we're just all just pawing our way in the dark, trying to find the truth. And at first that sounds really humble. You know, most people say, yeah, I wanna be part of that church. That sounds like a humble church rather than these dogmatic people. The problem though, is that the, 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 the uncertainty crowd wants to enforce their uncertainty. And the only way they can enforce a culture of uncertainty is to condemn people who claim to be certain. But as soon as you start condemning people who claim to be certain, then now you're certain. And so there's no way around it. The, the people who are trying to be uncertain end up being Pharisees themselves um, and end up, you know, enforcing this culture of uncertainty. And so my, 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 my general sense is, is that when people say, hey, questions are more important than answers, what, that's just a euphemism for saying we don't want to find answers. We want to stay in the realm of questions so that we can never land on anything and never have to say what's right or wrong or true or false and everybody can have their own private view. And I think that is 100% symptomatic of progressive Christianity. And I think People could probably say that's also very symptomatic in our culture broadly. People just don't like to say that's right and that's wrong. Dr. Kruger, um, so what I'm hearing you say is um, uh, we need to have a confidence in what we believe about God's word. And Absolutely. perhaps if there is a crisis, and it's been an increasing crisis in my observation and reading uh, in the Western church since the Second World War, that the, the Western church has uh, embraced um, uh, 
such a progressive doctrine that she's lost her confidence in the word of God. One of the great gifts of the tradition that I'm part of in our churches is that we stand when the word of God is read. Uh, yep. We honor the word of God. We honor God speaking to us. Um, uh, and, and yet we see so often today um, uh, 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 churches becoming placeholders for uh, Bibles becoming placeholders for coffee mugs and cell phones. And uh, uh, many people know I've I had the privilege of working for many years with the persecuted church in the Muslim world. You'd never see a Muslim uh, treat their holy book the way Christians treat the Bible. Uh, never held the hello waist tight, never propping up uh, um, a computer or something like that. Uh, and, and, and in our hands, we hold the word of God. Uh, and so uh, would you agree that there's, there's this lack of confidence in many parts of the Western church in the Absolutely. Bible? Absolutely. And this, you know, you, you and I touched on this a little bit earlier, which is that the, 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 the slipping away of confidence in the truth of God's word is the beginning of a journey towards progressive mm-hmm. Christianity. And so there's no doubt that, that doubts about the truth of God's word play a role here. I, w- I would add something else, though. I think part of what's going on here is a misunderstanding of what humility is. Um, I think some Christians have bought into the world's definition of humility. The world's definition of, definition of humility is basically uncertainty. To be humble is to be uncertain, and to be uncertain is to be humble. And so if you claim certainty about anything in the world's eyes, then you're not humble, because their definition of humility is uncertainty. The problem with that is that that's not the Bible's definition of humility. The Bible's definition of humility is not sort of uncertainty. The Bible's definition of humility is not giving yourself credit for anything, not giving yourself glory and honor for what you know. Christians know things, and they know them with certainty, but not because we're great, not because we're wonderful, because God has revealed them clearly in his word. And so what, what people don't realize is that when Christians say something's true, we're not saying it's true because we're smarter than everybody else and that we figured it out. We're saying it's true because God has revealed it, and you can know it's true too if you just trust God. So there's not a sense in which Christians are going around saying, look how smart we are, look how smart we are. We're more certain because we're so brilliant. No, we're certain because we're dependent on what God has done. And that is, hum- that is humble. To, to, to listen to God, what God has done, and, the, and to rely on him is not arrogance. That's humility, and that's the Bible's definition of it. Okay, one more, uh, Dr. Kruger, I want to talk to you about um, talking more about Jesus being a model for living than an object for worship. And I want to take you to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, back there on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's, let's uh, consider verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Isn't that a model for living, or is it an object for worship? Can you help us understand yeah. that? Well, you know, like, like we've been saying all along, uh, lots of these things are a mix, right? Or you could say it's both. And in that chapter, I do start by acknowledging, and I, and I think Christians can, can freely acknowledge this, that Christ absolutely is a model for how we should live. Of course, he's a moral example. We have passages throughout the New Testament that make this claim, um, and that Jesus puts himself forth as the path we walk in and the path we follow. So I look to Jesus for what it looks like to be a good shepherd or to be humble or to be patient or to be kind. Um, of course, he's a, a moral example. That's not the issue. The issue is he merely a moral example, or maybe mm. to put it even more poignantly, is he primarily a moral example? Um, and that's where we come to this question of the identity of Jesus. If Jesus is just a wise sage, 
just a good prophet, just a good teacher, then yeah, he's, he's just a moral example. And I guess I could try to emulate his life like someone might emulate Gandhi. The problem though, is that Jesus doesn't let us do that because he says, I'm more than a moral example. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the incarnate God in the flesh. And therefore the object also of your worship, praise and obedience. In other words, if Jesus is God, um, incarnate, then that changes the game. Of course, he, he remains a good moral example, but it would be hardly honoring to God to say that you're merely a moral example in my life. No, God is much more than that. He's also my Lord and my King and worthy of my worship. And so this is, this is one of the hallmark uh, uh, moves of progressive Christianity. In fact, Jay, Jay Gresham Machen's book, one of his earliest chapters, if I'm remembering correctly, deals with with Christology. One of, the, one of the beginnings of a slide in progressive Christianity is a low view of scripture, a low view of sin, and then thirdly, a low view of Jesus. You take Jesus off the God uh, uh, status and move him down to human status. As soon as you do that, you're happily on your way to progressive Christianity. So we want to acknowledge, of course, he's a moral example, but not only that, he's, he's the Lord. He's God and he's, he's worthy of our worship. The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. I've enjoyed it. It's been really helpful to me. I want to encourage those who are listening to uh, get a hold of it again. The link uh, will be in the uh, show notes of this uh, podcast. Dr. Kruger's uh, books have been incredibly impacting to me. Uh, his ministry has assisted me. It strengthened my faith uh, in Christ as I've studied the Word of God and read what he has written. He's impacted a number of the clergy uh, in our diocese through his ministry at RTS. Dr. Kruger, what's on the boiler? What's coming up next? What are you working on? Yeah, I've got two projects coming out this coming year, or really the next 12 months is probably the better way to say it. So I have a commentary on Hebrews, which is going to be coming out next April. Uh, and then I have a book with Crossway on uh, the title of that book is Surviving Religion 101, which is actually a book on helping college students keep their faith while they're in a university setting. So I'm excited about both those. Fantastic. We look forward to those. Look forward to perhaps having you back. Talk about those when they're, when they're out. And uh, great to have you part of us again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Julian. Great to be with you. Yeah, great. This is Living Through the Word, and I'm Julian Dobbs. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace.